Proverbs 22. Now, you may recall, we've talked about before, if you've been going through the Proverbs with us, that you can divide up the book of Proverbs into six different parts. If you walk it through, chapters 1 through 9 are what I would call the call of wisdom. That's where Solomon doesn't even get into the Proverbs. He takes nine chapters as the voice of wisdom calls out, listen to me, calling out in the streets. That's the first nine chapters of this of this book. Then beginning in chapter 10 and running through halfway through where we'll be tonight, chapter 22, verse 16, is what we can call the chief Proverbs of Solomon. Right? These are the ones that he wrote, he put together, he collected, and he put into his first uh, edition, if you would, of the Proverbs. In addition to these, beginning in verse 17 of chapter 22 tonight, and then on through chapter 24, we have the collected sayings of the wise. You'll note the the break here where Solomon turns from his own Proverbs and says, now listen to these other wise sayings. And so the collected sayings of the wise, some may be of Solomon, others of other wise men, but with each of these I remind you that it's the Spirit of God speaking through these Proverbs. His choice for each and every one of these to be in Scripture. Even those that may seem repetitious, God wants to be said again that we would hear them and, and really get them into our hearts. So the collected sayings of the wise through verse through chapter 24. Then chapter 25 through 29 you could call the compilation of Solomonic Proverbs. If you want to be theological in your language, the compilation of Solomonic Proverbs, what happened there is 200 years after the original book of Proverbs was written by Solomon, Hezekiah's scribes found several more. And those then were included in the book of Proverbs as well. More Proverbs of Solomon from chapters 25 through 29. And then chapter 30 is the comments of the prophet Agur. One, one chapter for him. And then one chapter, the commendations of King Lemuel, either written by Lemuel or written by his mother. And we'll close out Proverbs with that. So we won't get all that tonight. But tonight we will finish the chief Proverbs of Solomon, ending halfway through chapter 22. And we will head into the collected sayings of the wise. But this call of wisdom is the call of the Spirit. These are the words of God. I I love Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 2. Let my teaching drop as the rain, and let my speech distill as the dew, as the droplets on the fresh grass, and as the showers on the herb. And the Lord said in Isaiah 55, verse 10, As the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. And Jesus said in Matthew 24, 35, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And so we continue on. In the Word of God tonight, chapter 22, verse 1, the book of Proverbs, A good name is to be more desired than great wealth. Favor is better than silver and gold. A good name is is equivalent to a good reputation. A good name. And I was thinking after reading this proverb, what am I known for? 
You know, maybe that's a question for all of us to ask. What are you known for? When your name is spoken, what do people think? What kind of a reputation, you know, orbits the speaking of, of your name? I'm a big L.A. Lakers fan. It was a tragic year for L.A., but that's okay. They've got next year. And their small forward, a guy by the name of Ron Artest. Ron Artest officially changed his name. Now, that's not new for basketball players. You, you might know back in the day, Lou Alcindor changed his name to Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And a few of us thought that was a little strange, but hey, he makes a lot of money and he makes a lot of dunks. He can call himself whatever he wants. Well, along comes Ron Artest. He has changed his name from Ronald William Artest to Meta World Peace. <laughs> I kid you not. It's official. His new name is Meta World Peace. And so on the back of his jersey, it's just going to say Peace. Which, you know, the Laker uh, club feels like that's cool. You know, Peace on the back of his jersey. I don't know why he chose Meta World Peace. Uh, it's a strange name. Perhaps he wants to clear his past and get a fresh start. Maybe Ron Artest just wants to make a name for himself. He wants a name out there that people are not going to forget when it's spoken. Well, that makes a certain degree of sense. You see, after the scandalous actions, behavior, reputations of Adam and Eve, the first two sinners, and after Cain, the first murderer, came along, the sons of Seth began to look for a new name. In fact, the Bible tells us that Seth had a son, and his name was Enosh, Genesis chapter 4, verse 26. And then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. The literal Hebrew there is probably men began to be called by the name of the Lord. God's people, God's men, Lord dudes, I don't know, but they were called by the name of the Lord. They were called by a name that counts, that matters. People began to really follow God in the line of Seth. And you can see that if you track the line. It's fascinating to read through Genesis chapter 5. What you think of as just a genealogy in that chapter is actually far more. I'm not going to get into it tonight, but if you're curious, ask me afterwards. That chapter is mind-blowing. But you follow these names down, and there are some significant guys in there. Enoch is in there, the man who walked with God, and he was not because God took him. First guy raptured, just went home with God. He's in there. Methuselah, whose very name is the prophecy of the flood. Noah is in that line. A righteous man, indeed. So men began to be called by the name of the Lord. Ten generations passed from Adam to Noah. But in Noah's generation, all but eight names would end up mud. Literally. It wasn't long after God washed the earth clean in the flood and all those people were, were wiped out that these eight, you know, began to grow and multiply and spread out on the earth again and man was back to his old tricks. Genesis chapter 11 verse 4, they said, come let us build a sit, or for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into the heaven and let us make for ourselves a name. Let's make a name for ourselves. Let's be meta world peace. Or perhaps tall tower to the heavens. But let's create a name for ourselves. Listen, there are two basic problems when you try to name yourself. When you try to go for that name change to be a significant person in and of yourself, naming yourself, number one, Satan will attack it. 
You can go for a new name, but no matter who you are, especially if you try to do anything good for the Lord, Satan will attack your name. Your name will be dragged through the mud at some point. The other problem is that if Satan doesn't attack it, sin will pollute it. So either way, it's not good. No matter who you are, eventually you'll drag your own name through the mud when you're looking to make a name for yourself. But there's a name that's clean. There's a name to which no mud can stick. No pollution can cling to it. Acts chapter 11, verse 26 tells us the disciples were first called Christians at Antioch. You know how I feel about this. I don't see any reason for us not to be called Christians. For us to deny that name or to be embarrassed by that name. People who say, oh, I'm not Christian. I, I, I follow Jesus, but I'm not one of those Christians. Hey, to be a Christian is to be a follower of Jesus. And it is a name I am proud of. I love to be called Christian. Oh, you're one of those Christians? Yes, I am. No. The name, the name that matters, a good name. Hold fast to it. If you're looking for a name that's clean and good and solid, the name of Christ. And by the way, for all of those who've had their name dragged through the mud, whether by your own sin or by the slander of the enemy, check this out. Revelation chapter 2, verse 17. Jesus says, To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name, written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. You get a new name. But not just any new name. You get a new name that only you and Jesus know. Which means that not a single one of us are going to be just part of the nameless rabble of worshipers in heaven. Maybe you've had that question in your head. You know, I actually like walking on earth because I feel like I'm the most important person to Jesus. And I am. Don't you have that feeling? Don't you kind of sometimes when you're talking to the Lord, it's almost like nobody else is as close to the Lord. Or nobody else gets to have this intimate relationship. Nobody else knows me like the Lord knows me. But when I get to heaven, it's just going to be multitudes upon multitudes around the throne. How is Jesus even going to notice me? You will have a name that only you and Jesus know. That's cool. And it's a guarantee. So whatever happens with your name here, you know, a good name is to be more desired than great wealth. Favor is to be is better than silver and gold. And that good name, that's the name of Jesus. That's the name to desire. Verse 2, the rich and the poor have a common bond. The Lord is maker of them all. That phrase, common bond, I like better. The actual translation, King James nails this one. The rich and the poor meet together. The rich and the poor meet together. Regardless of economic level, all people will meet together and stand before their maker. All people, rich and poor, will come together before God. Romans 2 verse 11 says there's no partiality with God. From the most wealthy to the least wealthy on planet earth, no partiality. God doesn't look at people any different. Your money doesn't make any difference to Him. And note this, the rich and the poor meet together. The Lord is maker of them all. And everyone will meet their Maker. When we meet together, we will meet our Maker. But catch this, it doesn't say the Lord is Father of them all. And even in the church, people talk about, oh yeah, God is Father of all mankind. Mm, No, He's the Maker of all mankind. He's the Creator of all mankind. But for Him to be your Father, 
requires faith in His only begotten Son. When you put faith in the Son, in Jesus, then you become adopted in. Well, let me let John tell you. John chapter 1, verse 10. Jesus was in the world, and the world was made by Him. He is the Maker. But the world knew Him not. He came into, unto His own, and His own received Him not. That's the Jewish people. But as many as received Him, to them He gave the power to become sons of God to them that believe on His name. You want God as a Father? You have to believe in the Son. And when you believe in the Son, you're drawn in, you're adopted in. Uh, people who are not born uh, of, of blood or the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It's a fantastic adoption. Whereby we become sons of God, daughters of God, and God is our Father. You know, I was thinking that when Cheryl and I went to Ghana two years ago, there were only three children at Beacon House who would bear our name. Just three. Lots of kids were there. Lots of precious kids were there. But for our family, there were only three that would bear our name. Anna Marie, Naomi, and David Crawford. Those three would bear our name. Other children would bear other family names and would go become parts of other families adopted into these families to have a new name. And that's pretty cool. And God does that with every single one of us. If we call on the name of His Son, we are able to name Him Father. Rich and poor alike. We'll meet our Maker, but, but mark this, He is only Father to those who believe in the Son. Verse 3. The prudent sees the evil and hides himself, but the naive go on and are punished for it. The reward of humility and the fear of the Lord are riches, honor, and life. Thorns and snares are in the way of the perverse. He who guards himself will be far from them. And according to these three Proverbs, the main difference between the wise and the foolish, at least in this sense, is how close they get to sin. The foolish plunge right in. The foolish go headlong for it. The foolish don't regard evil as any different. They just head right for it. They go to it. The simple-minded... They either plunge headfirst into sin or they get as close to the edge as they can. Where's the line? How close can I stand? What can I do and still be okay? Let me give you an example. I was two weeks out of high school. I've shared this story before, but not in this context. A good friend of mine, Rick Rudolph, was killed. He was up in Yosemite, camping there with his family and, and friends. And uh, he and his girlfriend, Mary, and some of his younger siblings were hiking the trails one afternoon. And when they got up to one trail, his younger brother went over to the river that was flowing by to fill up his canteen. Well, the rocks were slippery, and his younger brother slipped and caught himself and and quickly came back because he was afraid to go out to the river. And Rick said, I'll take care of it. And he took his canteen and went out to the river and slipped. But he didn't catch himself. He went right over the edge and went down a a steep slope of about 200 feet. They raced down to see what had happened. When they got down to the bottom, he was already gone. Apparently it struck his head on a stone, either landing or, or going down the hill or something, but died instantly. And I remember Mary, who was a good friend of mine, Cheryl knew her as well, I remember her saying over and over when they got back home, why did he have to get so close to the edge? And that really stuck with me. It was a traumatic time. Why did he have to get so close to the edge? Consider your walk. 
How close to the edge are you going to get? Is this sin? Is this okay? Is sin right here? When we walk that fine line, the Proverbs say that's just foolish. The prudent sees evil and hides himself. Doesn't go near it. Doesn't want to be around it. But the naive go on. And they are punished for it. At the end of verse 5 again, he who guards himself will be far from them. That's the key. To be far from sin. To be far from evil. Look, we are free in Christ. We are covered by grace. But some take that to be licensed. Well, if I'm free in Christ, then I can do just about anything. Yeah, you probably can. And get ensnared by it. And fall by it. And deal with the consequences of it. Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 15, For such is the will of God, that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men, and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. When you say, no, I'm not going to go down that road. No, I'm not going to be in that place. No, I'm not going to visit that area. And someone with you says, well, why wouldn't you do that? Oh, you're a Christian, so you can't do those things. I'm a Christian, so I choose not to. I am free not to go to those places. I am at liberty to avoid things that I know just are going to ensnare my life. I will not go near the edge. I love the way the Psalms begin. Psalm 1, verse 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And in His law He meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water. Not slipping on the rocks, not unsure of His footing, firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever He does, He prospers. By the way, moms and dads, Grandmas and grandpas, aunts and uncles, consider your walk because little eyes are on you 24-7. They are watching everything you do far more than they are listening to what you say. Look at the next proverb. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. This is critical. And I know it's a familiar verse. We've probably all heard this proverb at one point or another. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he's old, he will not depart from it. The Hebrew word train up there is a significant word. It's hanak in Hebrew. It means dedicate. In fact, hanak. Does that sound familiar? Enoch. Enoch means dedicated. Enoch who walked with God and was not for God took him. Dedicated is the meaning of his name. Hanak is where Enoch comes from. It means to dedicate. To dedicate. Train up. Dedicate. Listen, training up requires dedication. It requires commitment. I just had yet another conversation with my son Hayden today about this whole issue of of, of even how we're parenting him and explaining to him, son, I've got three options. Option A, I can let you do whatever you want. And my life would be easier, at least in the short term, until I had to start cleaning up you know, your messes. But I just let you do whatever. Go ahead. Feel free. Raise yourself. Or option B, over here, we could be hard and fast and not allow anything. Nothing. I could just be the dad of no. Hey, Dad, I was wondering if I could... No! Well, Dad, I was just... No! You know? I could do that. And you know what? 
It'd be hard for a while, but it'd be easier for me. I wouldn't have to have discussions. I wouldn't have to have debates, conversations. The answer would just be no. After a while, he'd get used to that. And probably by doing that, I would drive him right away from the grace of Jesus. Or, <laughs> the tough choice. We can walk through every decision, every day. Sometimes it's yes, sometimes it's no, but it's always couched in, how does this teach you about Jesus? How does this teach you wisdom? And I'm finding, as a parent, that's the hard one. That's the one that is exhausting. That's the one that, frankly, at the end of the day, when a new question comes up, there are times I just don't want to, I want to say whatever, or I want to say no. But the Bible calls parents to be dedicated. It's hard work. And whoever told you otherwise, young people who have not had kids yet, eventually someday, you need to factor this in, it is hard work. And it doesn't get easier when they get out of diapers. <laughs> like, that's the easy part. That kind of smelly stuff I can deal with a whole lot easier than the other smelly stuff. Dedicate. Training up requires dedication. There's a difference between teaching and training. Teaching is just telling. That's what I'm doing tonight. I'm teaching. I'm not training you tonight. Do you understand that? That this is just teaching? The training happens when you go out the door and you take the teaching and begin to live it. Begin to walk it out. Teaching is telling. I'll tell you why, son, daughter. I'll tell you why I believe what I believe. Training is living. And doesn't require much in the way of words. It's all action. Follow my example, Paul said, as I follow Christ. The parent who would train up a child in the way he should go is not just talking to his kids, her kids, about Jesus. They are living out Jesus in front of their children. Completely different thing. And I think that's sometimes where we miss it as Christians. As long as I tell them about Jesus, and then, you know, I'll do my own thing, but I'll tell them about Jesus. I'll get them to Sunday school. Well, that's not training. That's telling. Training is walking it out. It's living it out in front of them. They watch what you do far more than they listen to what you say. And I know this because the moment I start talking, I'm usually about three, four seconds in before the eyes start rolling back into their heads. You know, and they're gone. But walking it out. What is it that they see you doing every single day, day in, day out? How are you living your life in front of them? Parents, what do they see that matters to you? What would they say is important to you? Is there consistency between the words you speak and the walk that you take? Ephesians 6.4, Paul says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. But bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Now, Cheryl's always telling me, Rick, don't provoke the kids. You know what the Bible says about that. My provoking is more in fun, you know. I just like to irritate the kids just for fun sometimes. Provoking to anger. Driving them to that place of sin. Being in a, in a hard relationship with the child is what he's talking about. But bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The Greek word, bring them up, and it's in Ephesians 6.4, is ektrophete. Okay, let's move on. No, I'll tell you what it means. It means to nourish, to provide for. Paul says you nourish your children in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. And like I said, it's tiring. It's exhausting. 
And I know sometimes the physical needs are so exhausting that when it comes to the spiritual needs of raising kids, you don't feel like you have the energy to provide it. I know how it feels. But it's the spiritual feeding that they need for eternity. That's the one that is far more important. Man, if you're going to skip anything, skip a meal. But don't skip opportunity to teach and train children in the way of the Lord. So that, even when he is old, he will not depart from it. And and this is something else to note. It doesn't say he won't depart from it. It says when he's old, he won't depart from it. And we're talking at staff meeting today about how often we see, you know, there's that, the 20-somethings, and I gave you some statistics a couple Sundays ago about the 20-somethings walking away from the church. But those statistics don't deal with how many 20-somethings come back to Jesus in their 30s, in their 40s. Because there was a foundation laid that resonates with their heart. That something is there of value that they begin to tap back into and realize, I do need that. There is some truth there. There is some legitimacy to all that. There is value in following Jesus. Verse 7. The rich rules over the poor, and the borrower becomes the lender's slave. We've just crossed over the month of June 2011. Experts and economists told us, hey, the Great Recession is over in June of 2009. That's what they all said. The Great Recession technically ended. I'm not sure how they do all their figuring, but they certainly haven't looked at unemployment. You know? They haven't looked at gas prices and inflation and, and, and where the country's at. I, I don't know how they can say it was over in 2009. It was two years ago. And the truth is, and I'm not speaking politically here, let's just be real for a second, bank bailouts, auto industry bailouts, and shovel-ready stimulus packages have not worked. Why are we talking about this? Well, add to these the nationalization of health care. And the U.S. government has more control over the finances of this nation, which means you and me personally, than any time in our nation's history. So what? So they can help, right? So they can take care of the needs, right? Wrong. What does this mean to the individual American? Listen to verse 7 again. The rich rules over the poor, and the borrower becomes the lender's slave. We become enslaved when we are dependent on someone, something, some institution, some organization. And the Bible's very clear about this. Do you realize that the governmental control over the once private banking system uh, has brought us to the point where most homes in America are owned by the government? Home loans. Okay, what are you saying, Rick? I'm saying that our government has new leverage over its citizens that it never had before. What does this leverage mean? It means, Christians, listen, it means when social issues are pressed, gay marriage, abortion rights, separation of church and state, where the state can now tell the church what it can and cannot do or preach. God warns against becoming a lender's slave. And when the government has that kind of financial leverage over the citizens, it can begin to prescribe to the citizens how they will live their lives. And we've already seen it happening. Well, that's kind of depressing. So what do we do? Do we change our political party? No. 
Do we walk up and down the street holding up signs? America's dying, you know? No. We pray. You probably knew that answer was coming eventually. We pray. We pray the Lord turns the President's heart like channels of water. As we talked about Sunday, we intercede for godly wisdom to replace governmental waste. I like that. Godly wisdom instead of governmental waste. Perhaps you heard about Governor Rick Perry of Texas. He's called for a day of prayer and fasting based on the book of Joel, which I think is pretty amazing. He's issued a proclamation to the citizens of Texas and sent a letter to his 49 fellow governors asking them to participate in the event which will be held August 6th at Reliance Stadium in Houston. And I'm thinking we might join him. By the way, I haven't run this by show yet or our staff, but I'm thinking maybe August 6th we'll, we'll meet here in the barn at some point during the day and have some time of worship and prayer and, and join this. Here's the proclamation that uh, Texas Governor Rick Perry Said out, given the trials that have beset our country and world, from the global economic downturn to natural disasters, the lingering danger of terrorism and wars that endanger our troops in Iraq, Afghanistan, and theaters of conflict around the globe, and the decline of our culture in the context of the demise of families, it seems imperative that the people of our nation should once again join together for a solemn day of prayer and fasting on behalf of our troubled nation, wrote the governor. This is a governor. In America, writing this, sending this out. In times of trouble, he says, even those who have been granted power by the people must turn to God in humility for wisdom, mercy, and direction. In the spirit of the book of Joel, chapter 2, verses 15 through 16, I urge a solemn gathering of prayer and fasting. As those verses admonish, quote, Blow the trumpet in Zion, declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, consecrate the assembly. As Jesus prayed publicly for the benefit of others in John 11, 41 and 42, so should we express our faith in this way. Rick Perry for president. <laughs> I love that. And I don't, you know, all politics aside, for someone to have the kind of guts to stand up as a governor in America and say, let's stop and pray. Yes, right on. Absolutely. The way Jesus did publicly. John eleven forty one. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always heard, hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it, so that they may believe that you sent me. Why go public with your faith? For those who don't have faith, to see that there are people of faith in this country still. There is faith in God. It's not a wacky thing. It truly is a life-changing, life-altering, life-strengthening faith. So, August 6th. Let's keep that one in mind. August the 6th. Verse 8. He who sows iniquity will reap vanity, and the rod of his fury will perish. Said another way, he who sows iniquity will reap emptiness. Sow to sin, you're going to get nothing out of it. And the rod of his fury will perish, or you'll beat yourself up. Verse 9. He who is generous will be blessed. For he gives some of his food to the poor. I put these two proverbs together because, listen, you can, if you can sow the seeds of sin, you will reap emptiness. And in your furious attempt to get more out of life, you'll beat yourself up. Or, or you can be generous. And in your generosity, you will be blessed. 
And it really all depends on where your eyes are as to whether you're sowing iniquity to emptiness or you're generously giving and being blessed. It depends on where your eyes are. What do you mean? The Hebrew there in verse 9, for he who is generous, is literally he who has a good eye. Good eye, Rick. Good eye. You know, that's what they called when I was in Little League. I love what Brian Regan, the comedian, talks about. He says, you know, they shout, they shout good eye when you duck just in time for the ball not to hit you in the head. Good eye, Brian. Oh, thank you. What I do? You know, you didn't let the ball hit you. Oh, good, because I almost did and then I didn't. You know, good eye. <laughs> and this verse, this verse is saying, good eye. He who has a good eye, an eye that's wide open, is the same as he who is generous. Good eye. What does that mean? It, it was a tough thing to learn in Little League. It really was. It's tough to keep your eyes open when the hard ball is coming at your head. You know, when you're standing there with the bat and the ball's coming, if you ever played Little League, you may remember those first few times where here comes the ball, and, and right when you went to hit it, you close your eyes because you didn't know what was going to happen, and you didn't want it to happen to you. So you just close your eyes the last second. And it's like closing your eyes to the needs around you. And the more we close our eyes to opportunities to be generous, the more we close our eyes to the world around us, the more our eyes are fixed on ourselves instead of Jesus. And so it's a key to a satisfying full life that is eyes wide open to the needs. To pray, God, give me vision to see what you see. Help me to see this world the way you see this world. So I see the need. So I see the good. So I see the opportunities to bless. Verse 10. Drive out the scoffer, and contention will go out. Even strife and dishonor will cease. He who loves purity of heart, and whose speech is gracious, the king is his friend. I really like that proverb. He who loves purity of heart, whose speech is gracious, the king is his friend. Pure hearts. And gracious speech. Solomon says, as a king, that's what I look for. I like having people in my court court with pure hearts and gracious speech. But more than that, the greater than Solomon, our King Jesus, loved when he ran across pure-hearted people who were gracious in their speech. Like that profound moment that Jesus had with the Roman centurion. In Matthew chapter 8, and you can turn there or I'll just read it to you. Matthew chapter 8. Verse 5, it says, When Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, imploring him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, Well, I will come and heal him. But the centurion said, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word, and my servant will be healed. I am also a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and he does it. What does that mean? It means the centurion saying, I know how it works. I know that you are the man of authority. And I know all you have to do is say the word, and your authority will bring about the result. In the same way that I say the word, and these people scurry and do what they are tasked to do, do, all you have to do is say, heal my servant, and he will be. Jesus heard this and He marveled. And He said to those who were following, Truly I say to you, I have now found such great faith with anyone in Israel. I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. 
East and west, yeah, places outside of Israel. And he says, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus said to the centurion, go, it shall be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed that very moment. Don't miss how powerful Jesus is. Okay, it's done. And he was healed. Jesus didn't see him. He didn't touch him. He wasn't even in close proximity of the servant. But he healed him instantly. And why? Because a pure heart. A man of of gracious speech. Jesus was so impressed with the faith of this guy. So what is it that attracts King Jesus to you, to me? What kind of a friend is Jesus looking for? He's looking for friends with pure hearts. Now no, the proverb doesn't say clean hearts. Proverbs proverb says pure hearts. What's the difference? Well, you can clean up a heart and it not necessarily be pure. The phrase, the, 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 the phrase pure hearts, in fact, when Jesus says, Matthew 5.8, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Why is that? It's because their hearts are uncluttered. You know, a heart can be clean and be cluttered. You, you can be clean, cleansed by the grace of Jesus Christ, walking as a clean-hearted person, but still have clutter in your life that keeps you from seeing God. The busyness and, and agendas and things going on. And so there's clutter in there. You're clean. You've been washed by the blood of the Lamb. You're going home when He calls, but you're having trouble seeing God. Why is that? Because your heart's not pure. A pure heart has to do with open eyes. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Those who see God, it, it's because their whole heart is Godward. It's because that's where the focus is. There's no clutter in the way of a person who purely wants to see God. And Jesus says, that's the kind of friend that I'm looking for. Someone who's looking for me. I want that kind of friend. Gracious speech. I want people with grace on their lips. Paul says in Ephesians 4.15 that we're to be people who are speaking the truth in love. He said in Colossians 4.6, Let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you will know how you should respond to each person. And you know what salt does? It brings out the flavor. I, I found out years ago, weirdest thing in the world, putting salt on cantaloupe. Oh, wow! I mean, I thought cantaloupe was alright until I put salt on it. And the, the sweetness just comes busting out. Paul says, have words like that. As, as though you're seasoned with salt. So as you're speaking words of grace, people are going, oh, that's sweet, that's good. I'd like some more of that. Unfortunately, a lot of people in the name of Christ have been bombastic. You know, it's slanderous or contentious in their declaration of the gospel. Sinners going to hell, you need Jesus. That's just not salted with grace. King Jesus loves pure hearts and gracious speech. Verse 12. The eyes of the Lord... Preserve knowledge, but he overthrows the words of the treacherous man. Patience. Patience is required, but the words of the treacherous will fall. The false teachings will fail. The other Bibles, the additional scriptures, the other religious books will all fall apart. God preserves knowledge. He preserves knowledge. He holds fast the truth, the Word, the Word of God that we have, that you're holding in your laps, handed down through the ages. Now, I know other religions claim that their Word is the Word. 
Every single one does. Book of Mormon, that's the, that's the final word, you know, the Mormons would say. Or, or the, the, the Muslims would say, no, 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 it's the Koran, it's the final word, because the Bible became corrupted. No, the Bible tells us the eyes of the Lord preserve knowledge. And you know what? To say that the Bible has become corrupt over the years is to say that God is incapable of keeping His word. I don't believe that. I don't believe the God of the heavens, with the might to create, with the power to heal, doesn't likewise have the ability to preserve the truth and to keep His Word whole. And the reality is that every other divine so-called book in the world does not hold up when scrutinized, when tested. The Book of Mormon fails miserably. The claims in that book of people groups where there is absolutely no evidence they ever existed, not a shred of archaeological proof or geological proof or geographical proof. Nothing. And contradictions and bizarreties. The Koran, over a third of the Koran is gibberish. It's It's not translatable. It's just bizarre. No other religious writing has ever held up to the scrutiny that the Word of God has been put to. And Peter says in 1 Peter 1.23, For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring Word of God. Yeah, but how can we be sure? I mean, how can we really be sure that the Bible is God's Word? Well, you can take my word for it. Or better, 2 Timothy 2.15 tells you, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed accurately handling the word of truth. You want to know that this Bible is the truth of God? Be diligent. Study it. Open the pages and test it out. The problem is most people don't get that far. Most people decide, oh, I'm just not sure if I can believe the Bible. And they stop right there without opening the pages to see why they should or should not believe it. I believe it after 25 years in ministry. I believe it because every time I've had a question, the answer has been provided. Every time I've gone after it, I've really dug in to find the truth behind it. It's always there. And I'm telling you, 100% of the time, this book has never failed to be proven true in my life. But don't take my word for it. Again, find out for yourself. It's what you're doing here, but it's more than here. You scrutinize God's Word. You check it out. You dig in. You be diligent to study the Word and know it for yourself. But God, He preserves knowledge. Verse 13. I love this verse. The sluggard says, There's a lion outside. I will be killed in the streets. What's that mean? I don't really want to get off the couch because if I do, I could get eaten up. Click. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to leave the house. It's dangerous out there. Lions, tigers, bears. Thank you. <laughs> They're all out there. What if they get me? Any excuse to hole up and not face life. You know what? Life is dangerous. I will give the sluggard that. There are lions out there. Well, not on this island, but there are coyotes and animals. Bunnies with big teeth, you know? (laughs) It's dangerous out there, truly. There's danger in the street. Lions in the street. Okay, Wall Street's dangerous. Some of you have discovered that. 
Main Street can be dangerous. We know there are nightmares on Elm Street. <laughs> Lions on the street. Listen, there really is danger outside. And Peter said, and note this, 1 Peter 5 eight: be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But you know what? Peter doesn't say the devil is a roaring lion. He says the devil is like a roaring lion. There's only one roaring lion. The lion of the tribe of Judah. There's only one lion who is the lion. One true lion who has the true power. The devil's just trying to be like that lion, but is not that lion. And Satan may claim to be this, but he's just lion. <laughs> Jesus is the lion. But he's not, you know, Satan is lying out there, lying through his teeth. Jesus is lying in here. Which is what John means when he says in 1 John 4, 4, You are from God, little children. You've overcome them because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And so for the sluggard who says, ah, it's just too dangerous to go out. No, go out because you have the lion of the tribe of Judah in you. And he is far greater than that liar, Satan. Verse 14. The mouth of an adulteress is a deep pit. He who is cursed of the Lord will fall into it. You know that adulteress, that means strange woman. The mouth of a strange woman is a deep pit. He who is cursed of the Lord will fall into it. And I, I thought, what does that mean, to be cursed of the Lord? The Hebrew word there, cursed, is za'am. We've seen the word before. Understand, it literally means indignant. We're talking about divine indignation. When the Lord is divinely indignant with a person, they are then open to the outcome of their sin. This is what we talked about last week a little bit. God's divine indignation, the Lord's holy anger, is reserved for those who have already separated themselves from God. When a person rebels, when a person separates themselves from God, they come out from under His covering, His protection. And they are left to their own devices. Kyle and Delich write of this proverb, the man who stands in fellowship with God is armed against this siren voice. What siren voice? The strange woman. He's armed against her. He, he knows what's going on there. He's alert to it. He's discerning. But he who is an object of the divine indignation falls into the pit, yielding to the seduction and the ruin. It's an interesting verse, and it's an example again of just what we talked about last week. Romans chapter 1, verse 24, 26, and 28. Where in all three cases, Paul says God gave them over to their sin. That's what's happening here. The mouth of an adulteress is a deep pit. If you're cursed of the Lord, you're going to fall into it. Because you don't have the blessing, the protection of the Lord. The discernment that comes by walking with God. God gives you over to your own sin. And it's not then God punishing you, it's your sin punishing you. Remember last week we talked about this. His wrath is being stored up. His wrath is not being poured out. When people sin, it's not God's wrath. It's not Him standing there going, (laughs) you know putting his thumb on them, making life hard. No, he gives us over to our sin. Our punishment right now is our own sin punishing us. If it was God's wrath, we'd be, we'd be toast. God gave them over. 
Verse 15, foolishness. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of discipline will remove it far from him. This is why you don't entrust a child's upbringing to the child. That is foolishness. Because foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. Well, we don't take little Susie to church because we want her to find her own way. Okay, great. Then her way will be foolish. That's what she has to work with. We don't push our values on Jimmy Jr. Because we want him to be free to make his own choices in life. Then he will choose to be a fool. You don't have to teach a child to sin. You don't have to teach a child to lie. You don't have to show a child how to hit his little sister or brother with a toy when they're trying to take it away. We naturally do those things. Foolishness, bound up in the heart of a child. What we don't naturally do is tell the truth. And we don't naturally act graciously. We have to learn these things. We're trained up in these things. In fact, Paul is so serious about it that in Romans chapter 3, turn over to Romans chapter 3 just for a moment. Romans chapter 3 and verse 9. He's going to give a series of quotes here from the Hebrew Scriptures. I'll tell you where they come from if you want to jot them down. What then? Are we better than they? Talking about Jews and Gentiles. Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks or Gentiles are all under sin. At this point in the letter, Paul, as we talked about last week, chapters 1, chapter 1 is about the foolishness of the Gentiles, of non-Jewish folk. Chapter 2 is about the foolishness of the Jews under the law. Everybody's messed up. Everybody sins. And Paul now really starts to lower the boom as he hits verse 10. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Where does he get that? Psalm 14, verses 1 through 3. It's a direct quote. Also, Psalm 53, verses 1 through 3. Direct quote. Then in verse 13, he pulls from Psalm chapter 5, or the fifth Psalm, verse 9. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues, they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, Psalm 140, verse 3 tells us, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness, Psalm 10, verse 7 tells us. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known, Isaiah 59, verses 7 through 8 tell us. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Psalm 36, verse 1. Man, can you imagine Paul writing this? The Holy Spirit is just downloading Hebrew Scripture. Just going, write this, Paul. Oh yeah, and this one, and this one, and this one. And this whole litany coming out of the Hebrew Scriptures, now in the New Testament, the entire Bible coming to this one summation, this one point. Nobody's righteous. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of the child. All are unrighteous. All are in need. And by the way, note this. Verse 16, destruction and misery are in their paths. Misery. It means if you if you leave a person to themselves, they will end up miserable. If, you, if there's no biblical training, if there's no godly truth, they will end up miserable. They won't know peace. The path of peace they have not known. You can change your name to Meta World Peace. You're not going to have more peace. 
To have peace, there's only one way to do it. Everyone, everyone with foolish hearts from early on need Jesus. And so down a few verses later, now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And so Solomon writes, going back to Proverbs, foolishness is removed by the rod of discipline. Yeah. Spanking. The paddle. You know? Applying the board of education to the seat of learning. That's what he's talking about. Corporal punishment. Well, I don't believe in that. You don't have to. It's your choice, but... The Bible says there is one way that works with a small or younger child to drive the foolishness out of their heart, and that is spanking. Now, there comes a point where it doesn't work anymore. You know, when they're, like Cheryl realized, when they're taller than you, probably not a good time to spank after that. (laughs) When you spank them and they laugh, (laughs) then it's time to turn to a new form of discipline. But... There is a plan. Now listen, please understand, I'm not talking about beating, I'm not talking about cruelty, I'm not talking about flying off the handle. Not abuse, but spanking. Measured, thoughtful, it's time for a spanking. Because it removes foolishness. I don't know how it does it, but I do know it's called child rearing. (laughs) You know what spanking does for a kid? It drives out guilt. Because the heart knows, the foolish heart knows that they have behaved foolishly. There's guilt in the heart. They're feeling bad about it. And punishment, immediate. Not just, I want you to go think about this for a while. Okay. Like, like that, uh, what's the line in a Christmas story? Kids know it's always better not to get caught. No, not think about it. Immediate. There's, there's an immediate punishment, an immediate feeling. It drives out the sense of guilt. I have now been punished for what I did wrong, and now I'm free from it. You know, that sense of wrongdoing, it doesn't hang over their heads. It deals with the wrong immediately, correctively. Not my words, God's word. God's word, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The rod of discipline will remove it far from him. Now you can say, I won't do that. Okay. All right. God's word. If you want to take it, it's true. There's some wisdom here. Let you think through that. Verse 16, he who oppresses the poor will make more for himself. Or who gives to the rich will only come to poverty. Listen again, he who oppresses the poor to make more for himself. Or who gives to the rich will only come to poverty. In both ways end up negatively for this person. You can call it the boomerang of bias. If you're biased against someone because they're poor, so you're not going to give to help out but you're holding on to your own money, it's not going to do you any good. If you're giving to someone because they're wealthy and you want to curry some kind of favor, not going to work. You're still going to be left to yourself. So it boomerangs on you. That's what he's talking about. Either way will leave you impoverished. And remember, God is impartial. God doesn't look... And that's one of the reasons that in our... As a principle in the church... Um, in the Bridge Fellowship, from the very beginning, we determined that leadership would not know what people give. I don't know. I will not know what people give. We were just talking today because we have the building fund and some people have begun to give apparently some, some gifts to the building fund, which is wonderful. 
But uh, Lisa Newfeld brought up in our staff meeting, we were talking about this, and she said, should we... We need to give some kind of response to them, you know, legally and otherwise, just saying we received that and, and it'd be nice for that to come from the church. And she said, would you like to write those letters or sign those? And I said, yeah, if we can do it in such a way that doesn't say that I know what they gave, because I don't want to know. And I don't think you want me to know. Because the second, as a pastor, the second I know what people give, I have in previous church situations. And no matter how I fight against it, there's still a tendency to, Oh, Brother Bob, big giver! How you doing? You know? And then there's, you know, Brother Samuel who walks in the door who hasn't given in 14 months, and you go, What's up? (laughs) So, (laughs) hey, it's the heart. Man tends to be partial. God is impartial. And so the way we deal with it here is I just don't know what anybody gives. I'm not even sure what we give. Do we give? Yeah, we, I think we do. But anyway. <laughs> now, <laughs> we get to the next section of the Mishlei, of the book of Proverbs. You, you finish right there, verse 16, and now we start a new section, verse 17. The collected sayings of the wise begin here. And we're going to move quickly through the end of the chapter. Follow along. Verse 17, incline your ear and hear the words of the wise. Apply your mind to my knowledge, for it will be pleasant if you keep them within you, that they may be ready on your lips, so that your trust may be in the Lord. I have taught you today, even you. Have I not written to you excellent things of counsels and knowledge to make you know the certainty of the words of truth that you may correctly answer Him who sent you. Now the construction of the Hebrew sentence there, verse 21, is really cool. This is what it literally how it literally reads here. To make you know the truth of the words of truth, that you may return the words of truth to the one who sent you. Let me read that again. To make you know the truth of the words of truth, that you may return the words of truth to the one who sent you which is perhaps the teacher or the rabbi. Solomon's saying, I want you to, to know the truth of the words of truth that I'm giving you so that as I send you out and you come back, you'll be speaking those words of truth yourself. You will have digested them. You will have ingested them. That the words of truth I'm teaching you, my sons, will now become your words of truth even as you come back. Nothing would bless a father more than to hear his sons, to hear his daughters speaking the words of truth that, that they have been taught. And that's what he's saying. You, you go out, you learn these words of truth, you go out speaking them, you bring the words truth, of truth back. And Jesus put it this way in Luke chapter 6, verse 40, A pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone after he has been fully trained will be like his teacher. So the more we're trained by Jesus, the more we become like Jesus. The more we're trained in the truth, the more we become bearers of the truth ourselves. Even as we come before Jesus, we're speaking words of truth that He trained in us. The true words of the truth. This is, this is so vastly important. It's so important to grasp here because the world is completely confused when it comes to truth world does not get truth. Deceived, blinded, foolish, totally whacked when it comes to the truth. And Solomon says, I want you to know the truth of the words of truth that you may speak the words of truth. That your life be surrounded by, immersed in the truth. 
which is so critical today because this world does not know the truth. This world is like Pilate looking truth in the face and saying, what is truth? Jesus was, Pilate was looking at Jesus, was looking at the truth and asking that question. It's amazing, John 14. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the truth. And it's just a few chapters later when Pilate, John 19, is now saying, yeah, but what is truth? (laughs) Hello? (laughs) You are looking at Him. And that's the whole point. That's the whole point of everything we're studying. What we're studying tonight, what we studied last week, what we studied across seven and a half years, and what we will study next week, Lord willing. The whole point, look back in verse 19, so that your trust may be in the Lord. That's it. That's why you should ingest the Proverbs, so that your trust will be in the Lord. It's why we walk in the truth, so that our trust will be in the Lord, not in ourselves, not our pastor or shepherds, not in each other. Our trust truly will be in the Lord. It's all about trusting Him. His wisdom, His Word, His truth, trusting Him. Going on in verse 22, there are just one, two, there's five more Proverbs here bunched up. First off, he says, Do not rob the poor because he is poor, or crush the afflicted at their gate. For the Lord will plead their case and take the life of those who rob them. There will be no question of guilt or innocence in the treatment of the poor because God is the prosecuting attorney, the judge, and the jury. And He will prosecute to the fullest extent of the law those who mistreat the poor, the little ones. You know, I wasn't going to say anything about it, but I might as well. The Casey Anthony trial just ended. She's been proclaimed by our legal system innocent. Rick, what do you think? Was she? I don't know. I honestly don't know. I have assumptions. I have opinions based on watching TV, but that's not the same as the courtroom. I don't know. But there were those who were weeping after that verdict came because they felt like Kaylee Anthony, the little child, the poor child, has been denied justice. Trust me, she will not be denied justice. God's going to take care of that. Whoever brought about the death of that child is going to have to deal with God. Whoever it is. And it's not my place to sit in judgment even of Casey Anthony. In fact, as I shared with you a few weeks ago, it kind of disgusted me how glued to the trial. I I just don't think it should have been televised at all. Just one big family tragedy. But justice will be done. And the Lord is looking at how we treat the poor. And that's not just financially. How we treat those who don't have the opportunity, perhaps, that you have. How we treat those who are poor in in their lives. They don't have the salvation, the riches, or the glory of Jesus. How are we treating them? We need to treat non-Christians differently than we treat Christians. See, Christians we love and Christians we treat with a certain degree of accountability. We love each other enough to hold each other accountable. Non-Christians, we don't apply the same standard to a non-Christian that you apply to a Christian. I can't believe he's out drinking. He doesn't know Jesus. What else is he going to do? You know? I can't believe the language he used. He doesn't know Christ. Why are you getting on his case? He needs to know Christ. But don't expect him to be, you know, upstanding like a, a Christian should be. Now, now if a Christian's heading into the bar, hey, 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 what are you doing, bro? 
What's this about? And that's loving each other. Now, I'm getting totally off. But you know, God will bring justice. That's the point of that one. Verse 24. Let <laughs> me just go off. Do not associate with a man given to anger or go with a hot-tempered man or you will learn his ways and find a snare for yourself. I think that's a real good one for the girls and ladies who are perhaps not encumbered. You know, not with a man. In your unencumbered state, you know what I'm saying? What? <laughs> the daily girls have just about had it with me tonight. <laughs> Seriously, don't associate with a man given to anger. Don't think, well, you know, I, I can I can cool him. I'll calm it. You know, when we're married it'll be better. No, it'll be far worse. Far worse. Don't even associate. Don't mess with it. Don't go with a hot tempered man. <laughs> are you a hothead? Are you are you someone who loses your temper easily? Don't assume that it's just the way you are. Sometimes I hear that. Well, I'm yeah, I'm just I'm just a little hot tempered. Well, then repent. Change. That is not a characteristic. It is it is a behavior that leads to sin. Paul says Ephesians 4.26 Be angry, yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Don't let it seethe and boil. Don't let it last overnight. Do not give the devil an opportunity. Anger is a snare. Anger is a foothold for the devil. Anger in and of itself is not sin. You You can be angry and not sin. But anger itself is dangerous business because it gives the devil an opportunity. Why? Because when we're out of control, we're not thinking straight. When I'm angry, I'm not acting correctly, and I sin. I sin far more easily when I'm angry than when I'm thinking clearly. So, girls, don't go with a hot-tempered man. It's good advice. Verse 26. Do not be among those who give pledges, among those who become guarantors for debts. If you have nothing with which to pay, why should he take your bed from under you? You know, he, he talks about this a lot, doesn't he? This idea, don't be a guarantor. Don't, don't co-sign on a loan for somebody. Be very careful. Shakespeare wrote in, in The Tempest, he wrote, Misery acquaints a man with strange bedfellows. Strange bedfellows. Bottom line is, if you get in bed with the wrong people, you're going to lose sleep. Or you might lose your bed. If you get in a situation where you are guaranteeing someone else's loan, someone else's finances, you're giving a loan to help out and you're expecting to be paid back and you get into that relationship, it's a tricky one. Solomon says, steer clear. Also, I shouldn't give anybody any help. No, give help. Just don't ask for anything in return. That's the easiest way to keep it free and clear. The Proverbs warn over and over against getting involved in someone else's debt. You've got to be careful with that. Biblical wisdom. If you're going to give, do so with no strings attached. Verse 28. I like this one. Do not move the ancient boundary which your fathers have set. I actually walked down to the edge of a property that we owned at one time where our house was at our little fence and there was a boundary marker there and I caught a neighbor trying to move it. I'm like, really? Are you serious? If you need an extra foot, you can have it. It's dirt, man. 
<laughs> it's not that big a deal. This is huge to God. This whole boundary marker thing. Listen, back in Deuteronomy 19, verse 14. The Bible says, You shall not move your neighbor's boundary mark, which the ancestors have set in your inheritance, which you will inherit in the land that the Lord your God gives you to possess. God says that is your inheritance, and you don't move that. He's big on inheritance. He wants people to have what He determines that they should have. Deuteronomy 27.17 says, Cursed is he who moves his neighbor's boundary mark, and all the people shall say, Amen. So when I, when I ran into this neighbor moving the boundary mark, of course I opened up to Deuteronomy 27.17. I said, Cursed! Be the man who moves the boundary mark! <laughs> you know, why? Why is God so serious about boundaries? Two quick reasons. Number one, because God sets the boundaries, not man. Do you realize you have what you have because God has determined that's what you should have? Be it homes, property, cars, whatever, that He has set the boundaries in your life. He may at some point in your life increase those boundaries. He may decrease them. But He sets every one of our boundaries. He gives every one of us what we need, what we can handle, what our life... So, And that's a great way to look at things because it takes all comparison out of the church. Well, I wish I had a house like Him. No, you don't. You wish you had the house that you have because that's what God gave you. And if you had another one, you'd probably burn it down anyway. You know, you'd mess it up. So be happy with where you are. God sets the boundaries. Acts 17.26 Paul says, He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their their habitation. God chooses that. We own nothing. God sets all the boundaries. So he's serious about it. But there's a second reason. Second reason why God is so serious about the ancient boundary marks is people keep trying to move them. Now I'm not just talking about land. Although if you look at Israel, that's a whole sermon right there. People trying to move the ancient boundary marks, trying to decrease what God gave to His people. But gang, listen. This one nation under God is in serious jeopardy because of those who keep trying to move the ancient boundaries. I'm talking about the Word of God. Trying to move the ancient boundaries of truth. It was 1964 when Dylan wrote and sang that famous song, that kind of protest song, The Times They Are A-Changin'. And they were. Culturally, it was a time of great upheaval and change in our country. And they still are. The times are always changing. But God's eternal truth is never a-changin'. God's eternal truth is always the same. We don't move the ancient boundaries because it's more relevant to our culture to look at things this way. You know, in our culture, the whole idea of spanking is just irrelevant and wrong and abusive. So in our culture, we're moving that ancient boundary marker. And what happens? We find out that things get out of control. There are fences there for a reason. There are boundaries of truth for a reason. Psalm 90 verse 2 tells us, Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God, not us. And He sets all the boundaries. Verse 29, Do you see a man skilled in his work? He will stand before kings. 
he will not stand before obscure men. We're talking about someone who's disciplined. Now, a little bit of Solomon may be coming out here. If indeed this was one of Solomon's proverbs, if not some other wise men, but something's coming out here. I'd rather have someone stand before me in my court who is wise and disciplined, skilled in what he does and does it well. That's what I'm looking for. Someone who does their job well. Well, the Queen of Sheba saw this in Solomon's court. She said to Solomon, 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 8, How blessed are your men! How blessed are these, your servants, who stand before you continually and hear your wisdom. She noted these men, these people, standing around Solomon and said, Wow! So these are the ones you've chosen. They're, they're blessed to be here, to listen to all these things that you say. Jesus said, The Queen of Sheba will make another judgment. Queen of the South will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, a greater than Solomon is here. What was Jesus saying? You're missing who I am. You are missing that I am wisdom. You're all impressed with the temple and the temple mount and Jerusalem and and the history and the glories of Solomon and you want to return to the glory days of Solomon but one greater than Solomon is right here and you're missing him and you're going to be judged for it. How can we guarantee that we will stand before our King as people skilled in their works? As people who are effective? Because, you know, we're going to be given authority. So you want to be skilled for the authority that you're given, right? How, how can we know? How can we do this? Well, the people asked Jesus that. John chapter 6, What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Remember what He said? Jesus said, this is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. And so, it takes us all the way back to where we began with a good name. It all has to do with believing on a name. If you want to be a skilled laborer for the kingdom of God, you start by believing on His name. The name of Jesus. You start there, and we end with a people standing before the King. And only Jesus can give us the strength for that stand. Jude 24 tells us, Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of His glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Amen. Father, You are the glorious King. And we thank You for Your Word tonight. We thank You that we have been able to stand in Your court and hear Your wisdom, the wisdom of our King of Kings, Jesus Christ. We thank You for Your Word. And we ask, Lord, that as we increase in our faith in Jesus, that You will increase our skill base, our our knowledge, our understanding. That You will increase in us the gifts that You've given us that we might serve You even better and more. Lord, that You will increase in us as we are generous, that You will be generous to us, that we might be more generous in the way we live our lives. And Father, that that in that day, Jesus, when You come, that we can stand before You in Your court, useful, skilled workers, blessed to be in the presence of wisdom Himself. Lord, thank You for Your Word tonight. Bless it to the hearts of all Your people in Jesus' name. Amen.